The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is a People's History of Kansas City from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan, and I'm sitting here in the studio with producer Mackenzie Martin. Hello, Suzanne. I am thrilled to be here. I understand you have a story for us today, Mackenzie. I do have a story for you, but I want to ask you what you know about Pride Month first. Hmm, Okay, well, I know that we celebrate Pride every June and that it honors LGBTQ history that goes back to the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, which uh, was a rallying moment for LGBTQ folks in New York who were fighting back police officers and demanding to be treated like everyone else. Would you say that you think of Stonewall as the start of the gay civil rights movement in America? Hmm. I don't know. Well, a lot of people do think of it as the beginning. But the truth is that gay rights organizations were actually around for two decades before Stonewall. Huh. Wow. So these activists' work was pivotal in setting up Stonewall to be this big turning point. But they've been forgotten. Which is unfortunate, because to really understand how Stonewall became Stonewall in 1969, we got to talk about the early gay rights movement of the 1960s, and how Kansas City played a huge part in everything that happened, specifically an activist named Drew Schaefer, who really changed the game. Everybody likes to say that gay rights started with Stonewall. That's probably another one of the big lies. Years before Stonewall, Drew Schaefer started Kansas City's first gay rights organization. He went full speed for four plus years. Then, armed with a printing press, he helped unite a national movement. It advertises bars, but then it also has some sort of hard-hitting, like, what's going on in the country is wrong, like, here's why you should fight back. It was a lifeline to so many people. There's no way to have Stonewall become sort of like this national fulcrum and spark point without the work that Drew did. Okay, Mackenzie Martin, I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. You're going to tell it to us, right? Yes, and I want to start at the Miller Nichols Library at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Hey. Oh, hello. I'm here with Stuart Hines the curator of special collections and archives. And we're looking at these LGBTQ magazines from the 1950s and 60s. All these issues came from a donor, a local donor. Looking at the latter, Lesbian Review. Oh, this doesn't have his his city address on it. Stewart collects these as the co-founder of the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America, a.k.a. Glamma. To him, these magazines are some of the most important artifacts of the homophile movement, which is the umbrella term for gay rights organizations that emerged after World War II. This whole movement starts in 1950 in in Los Angeles with the forming of the Mattachine Society. There was also one incorporated and the Daughters of Belitis. And all three of these groups put out their own magazines with completely different missions and perspectives. It's in the pages of these magazines that debates within the community start to take place. Stewart says by the mid-1960s, a lot of thought-provoking conversations were being had, but... Despite their best efforts, they're not making a huge amount of progress. Like with any movement, there were different factions, each with their own priorities and goals. And it didn't help that these activists were spread out across the country in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, D.C., and New York. 
Eventually, these groups were like, okay, we got to get together and find some common ground here. But since they were spread out along either coasts, there was some predictable squabbling about where to have a national meeting. Eventually, they landed on Kansas City, Missouri, because, as gay rights activist Frank Kemeny put it, Because Kansas City was equally uh, inaccessible to all the organizations that then existed. Equally inaccessible, unless your name was Drew Schaefer. Drew, then already a well-known leader in Kansas City's gay community, had supposedly read about the upcoming national meeting in one magazine and decided Kansas City needed to be represented. So he contacted One Incorporated and got a local chapter going literally right before the meeting. I think he was just a very outgoing sort of social guy and was just just one of those people who was able to make connections and take it upon himself in a very Midwestern way to make things happen. At the time, Kansas City was one of only about 16 gay rights organizations in the whole country. The weekend of the national conference, Drew even went on a Kansas City radio show to be interviewed about why national gay rights organizations were suddenly in town, acknowledging he was gay in the process. The public admission nearly got him fired from his job. That's because it was extremely dangerous to be gay in the 1960s. At one point, every state had sodomy laws banning same-sex relations, and homosexuality was talked about as this big societal dilemma. The problem of homosexuality or the existence of homosexual people is very often much closer to all of us than most of us realize. These acts are unnatural and can have no proper purpose. I think the fact that a given person may prefer a love of the same sex is their personal business. Kansas City news articles from the early 60s detail arrests and possible police raids on gay bars. Sometimes, even if no official crime was committed, people were fired for simply being seen near a gay-friendly business. To put it in perspective, though, Stewart says, it wasn't the same environment you were seeing in, say, New York City. Here, it wasn't nearly as oppressive. There was a pretty friendly relationship between the bars and the authorities. There were actually several gay bars on Troost Avenue, between Linwood Boulevard and 34th Street, and a really vibrant drag scene. It was very unusual because in big cities, in particular in New York, most of the 60s was a period of just increasing clampdown on activities in bars. Meanwhile, parts of Kansas City were thriving in semi-private spaces. This was recorded at the Jewel Box Lounge in 64, but there was also Arabian Nights, the Redhead Lounge, and the Colony. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, here I am again, Ray Bourbon, for some more fun for your night. Most of these bars were frequented by men, but there was also the Rail Room, a neighborhood bar by day that transformed into a lesbian bar at night. So anyway, this was the backdrop as homophile leaders from across the country and budding Kansas City leader Drew Schaefer descended on the State Hotel in downtown Kansas City in February 1966 dubbed the National Planning Conference of Homophile Organizations, it was the first time all of these gay rights leaders were in the same room. Together, they agreed on a national strategy, established a legal defense fund, and coordinated equal rights demonstrations. We have the full audio of that meeting, which I'll mostly spare you from, because in Stewart's words, it's extremely boring. Because it's a meeting. 
you know, and they're making motions and they're doing all this stuff and taking votes. and. But there's this one part that's kind of surreal to hear even 56 years later. Any other comments? It's kind of hard to make out, but one of the people there says he wants to hear from the fellow from Kansas City. The 10-minute segment of Drew is just a really a fascinating picture of Kansas City from that time. President of one incorporated in Kansas City, one in Kansas City. Tall, lanky, described by many as the life of the party, Drew Schaefer introduces himself to everyone as the president of a fledgling organization that has been together for a mere matter of hours. He also makes a point to say how important he thinks it is for all of the different homophile organizations to band together as a collective. All of the organizations should work together, and I don't think that one organization has the right to push their own organization without also pushing the entire homophile movement. Yeah, this is where I I feel like Drew is kind of manic. He wants to do everything, but he doesn't know where to start. Kansas City historian Kevin Charlo wrote an award-winning paper about Kansas City's early gay rights history, drawing on archival materials at Glamma. He says you can almost hear Drew working out for himself in real time how he can help the national movement. He gets a question, what do you think are the top issues affecting gay people in Kansas City? And he's like, uh, and like there's like a pause and it's like, well, communication. First of all, our problem in communication. I mean, problems uh, which affect the life of the homosexual in Kansas City. In Kansas City. Well, we're working on it. I'm sorry that we are not. I think Drew already has in his mind that Kansas City's niche can be publication and communication. If you keep listening, Drew breaks down the problems for gay people in Kansas City. Like how, yeah, Kansas City enjoys a great bar scene, but he can't walk downtown in an area known for cruising without being stalked by cops or accused of being a homosexual. And that was something he wanted to change. It was this kind of hyper-local thinking that led Drew to close the chapter of the National Homophile Organization he started a mere month later and create something entirely his own, the Phoenix Society for Individual Freedom, Kansas City's first gay rights organization. At this point in 1966, Drew is 29 years old. He's been out of the closet for almost a decade. He's blessed with the gift of charisma, and he's ready to make something happen. During the day, he'd go to his job as a construction machinist for the Caterpillar Tractor Company, but at night, he'd host these infamous parties and dances at the home he shared with his parents. Parents, I might add, who were incredibly supportive of Drew all his life. That's part of why I think Drew was able to rise to like the level of kind of leader of gay Kansas City politically at that time is because you know, a lot of other people had to hide or compartmentalize who they were around loved ones, around work scenarios, and Drew didn't have that. Drew having that freedom allowed him to kind of realize his privilege of like where he was is what he wanted the rest of the gay rights community to have. That's why when the Phoenix Society was officially formed with no more than 20 members, its headquarters was at Drew's parents' house. And there they found the real key to their success. Drew's dad's printing press, which they used to make their own homophile magazine modeled off of ones they already knew. They called it The Phoenix, Homophile Voices of Kansas City. And it was the first of its kind for the Midwest. 
A lot of their early stuff is like writings on just like what it's like to be gay in Kansas City. You kind of sense it that it's like they're pouring out just like things that everyone has gone through. Some of it just looks like art. But then you flip the page. And there's an article on why gay people shouldn't be kicked out of the military. The idea was that even if you didn't really care about politics, you'd get sucked in by something. Drew, as the president, wrote a regular column where he'd warn readers about cops practicing entrapment or the very real threat of extortion. When you see his writing, he's like truly writing to that aspect of we just want to be treated fairly. These are things that are injustices. Let's correct these injustices. It's important to note, though, that while the Phoenix was making moves for the entire LGBTQ community, it wasn't the most diverse group of folks. Like, eventually women did participate, but early on... Early on, it really was just all men, and it was all white men. There's one that is just, it's golden, because it's, it's, it's the earliest issue that we have in the collection. Um, it's from uh, uh, August of 66, and it's a look back at some of the early gay bars in Kansas City. There was a bar downtown, and while it welcomed all people, um, it was specifically a black gay bar. The most active female member of the Phoenix was probably Drew's mom, Phyllis Schaefer, a legendary Kansas City LGBTQ activist in her own right, who also ran a boarding house for Drew's friends. I remember her being really laid back and calm, totally the opposite of Drew. This is Charles, an old acquaintance of Drew and Phyllis's that Kevin interviewed years ago. Unless she was angry, and if she was angry about something, you could hear her a block away. And she would get all fired up about if somebody had been discriminated against or whatever. Phyllis also had a reoccurring advice column in the Phoenix Magazine under the pseudonym Estelle Graham. We love our Phyllis. She was an amazing saver, cognizant of the importance of documenting these stories in this history. Stuart Hines is referring to these really eclectic scrapbooks that Phyllis kept of gay and lesbian news story clippings. She'd paste all of the stories into these old wallpaper sample books, which created this juxtaposition of these horrific stories with beautiful wallpaper patterns. They're sad, they're scary, they're uh, infuriating, uh, you know, and they're tacked in with these yellowing pieces of scotch tape. And on the second volume, she has instructions on the cover of the volume to use scotch magic tape only. Remember, there's no internet. The Phoenix Magazine touched on what was happening in the movement nationally, in addition to functioning as a newsletter for the gay community in Kansas City. It was a lifeline to so many people because, number one, it told them they weren't alone. Number two, it provided them a connection with a community that they didn't have anywhere else. People would get it at gay bars, and if they liked what they saw, they'd subscribe to the mailing list. And you start to see them crop up in Iowa, in Nebraska, and all of a sudden this little tiny group in Kansas City is making a, like a little bit wider impact, and it's getting bigger and bigger. All these years later, gay rights activist Keith Spare still remembers meeting Drew Schaefer and other members of the Phoenix Society. It was the late 60s, and he was just a teen living in rural Kansas. I had the stinking feeling this brown-eyed, brown-haired kid from Brown County didn't belong in Brown County. So I got in my uh, 61 Chevy and drove to Kansas City. He went to a local gathering spot and almost immediately. And I was in conversation with several people when one young man mentioned 
that he was planning or helping plan the Midwest Conference of Homophile Organizations, and he needed someone with a car to help him do the planning. Well, this innocent little boy put up his hand and said, I have a car. And that's how I was introduced to the Phoenix Society for Individual Freedom. Then I was taken to the Phoenix House, introduced to all of the uh, members that wandered through and so forth. But the ones I got best familiar with was Mickey and Drew and with Scoop. So tell me a little bit about those three men and what they were like. Well, they were amazingly comfortable with being gay because they just, they were them. Keith says he was shocked when he realized that Drew and some of the other Phoenix members were using their real names, opening themselves up for public harassment. When I first came out, you didn't go to a bar and say, hi, my name is Keith Spare. You came up with a pseudonym and you hoped you remembered that was the name you gave them. That's why the Phoenix's magazines were so important. It connected Kansas City's gay community in a way it hadn't been before. It was a taste of liberation for these folks. And Drew didn't stop at the Midwest. Stuart Hines says less than six months after the Phoenix was formed, Drew went to another national meeting of homophile organizations in San Francisco. And it's there that the Phoenix is designated the clearinghouse for what becomes the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, NACO. This was a huge deal. This meant that for a small fee, other homophile organizations could submit their publications to the Phoenix Society in Kansas City, and they'd print and distribute them. And I'm talking about every homophile organization in the country here. Stewart says Kansas City essentially became the information hub for the entire movement. In the days before computer, that's a ton of work. Remember, this wasn't their job. This was their side hustle, their passion project. Kevin Charlo says it was all part of Drew's master plan to connect all of these homophile groups across the country. But... Was it a good idea? Uh, Ultimately, probably not. Drew's decision to become the national distributor of all homophile magazines in the entire country in 1966 was equally as ambitious as his decision to buy a three-story house in early 1968 he couldn't quite afford to be the Phoenix's new headquarters. The newly dubbed Phoenix House was conveniently located on Linwood Boulevard near the Gay Bar District. They held their meetings in this big living room on the first floor. The photos I've seen of it are just like empty, with chairs around in a semicircle, and then basically you'd expect Drew to probably be at the front of the room, standing shouldered and framed by the mantle and leading these meetings of, what do we do next? What do we do next? What do we do next? Because that's Drew. Drew and his partner, Mickey Ray, lived on the third floor, and the basement housed the printing press and the National Clearinghouse operation. There, you'd find dozens of volunteers reprinting and mailing newsletters from all over the country on a daily basis. But on top of all this there was also a vision for the second floor. He kind of viewed it almost as like a safe haven for people who needed a place to be, like a social safety net for gay people around like the area that have been outed. The Phoenix House quickly became a gay rights hub, with people coming in and out all the time. It was exciting, but eventually it all became too much for Drew. He ended up stepping down as the president of the Phoenix to focus on the National Clearinghouse, but it still wasn't enough to keep everything on track. 
As he starts to run out of steam, the organization starts to run out of steam. Drew was financially stressed and overworked. One way we know this is because Drew kept up a regular correspondence with another homophile leader, Foster Gunnison in Connecticut. He's like a gay rights father to, to Drew almost. Glamma got a hold of some of their letters back and forth. And all these years later, they're a window into Drew's mental state in 1968. Every letter in 68 basically mentions like, hey, I'm sorry to reach out this late. There's clear like delays in replying back and forth. And then you get to 69 and it's like, it basically like slips entirely. Simultaneously, the tensions that have always been simmering within the national homophile community start boiling over. One of the longstanding issues was, are we being radical enough? Are we actually getting anything done? And in large part, it's generational and it reflects precisely what happened in the black civil rights movement. Stewart says the old-school homophiles at national conferences were focused on Robert's rules of order and how to work within existing structures, while the younger members kind of just wanted to burn those existing structures to the ground. Staying relevant was a matter of financial survival for the Phoenix Society. The house, the magazine, they all cost money. Without ads, they were done for. Well, how are you going to keep growing and getting newer people, younger people, to buy your product and, and kind of join up if there's that generational divide between, like, respectability and let's fight back. I say all of this so that you know that these were the questions they were asking themselves in June 1969, before the biggest uprising in gay rights history. So honestly, Stonewall is basically the beginning of the end for Phoenix, too, in a good and bad way. The Phoenix after Stonewall right after this. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's going to be bumping. You got to be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org slash radioactive. On June 28th, 1969, New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn. The disorders began with a routine police raid on a homosexual bar. What set it apart from the many raids that had come before it was that this time the patrons fought back and ignited a grassroots movement that spread across the U.S. The fairies beat the cops. And that had never happened before. And that was a really powerful moment for this community that had been so oppressed by the police for so long. That one night and the protests and uprisings that followed immediately created youth-based activist groups. They designate themselves the gay liberation movement no more hiding behind this obscure term homophile. That really signals the end of the homophile movement. But Stuart Hines and Kevin Charlo both credit the way the national movement mobilized so quickly to Drew Schaefer and other homophile leaders. There's no way to have Stonewall become sort of like this national fulcrum and spark point without the work that Drew did, without the ability to connect all these disparate local groups and kind of make a rallying cry in one city the rallying cry of the gay rights movement nationally. 
Coincidentally, there was another national meeting of homophile organizations planned in Kansas City just five weeks after Stonewall, making Kansas City the place where the homophile movement first mobilized, in a sense, and also the place where a new movement started to eclipse it. It's really, really interesting to look at what was planned for the conference and what actually happened. It's clear that the younger membership have got the upper hand because they make all these demands, they try to do all this stuff, they interrupt. Fast forward to a year later. By the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, the entire energy around gay rights has shifted in favor of gay liberation. June 28, 1970, one of the most important days in the history of the American homosexuals' fight for freedom. I've been active in the what us old-timers call the homophile movement for about 10 years now. Gay rights activist Craig Rodwell. And after plugging away all this time, it really came as a, as a shock to me. I'd, I'd never dreamed that 2,000 gay people would really get out there and, uh, and stand up like they did. It was the most exciting week in my life, really. The North American Conference of Homophile Organizations meets one more time in 1970 and decides to disband. As for what happened to the Phoenix Society, Drew Schaefer's then-partner, Mickey Ray, writes that the media attention in 1969 left some volunteers feeling exposed and uncomfortable. The magazine was losing advertising dollars, and Drew was $50,000 in debt because of the Phoenix House. So in 1971, the Phoenix Society also disbanded, and Drew and Mickey moved into a mobile home. Kevin says Drew continued meeting with student groups and giving speeches, but... At that point, him and Mickey just want to kind of live their lives, raise their... They've got two little dogs. And that's what they did for quite a while. Drew and Mickey were together in Kansas City for 21 years. But their story took a sad turn in the summer of 1986, when they went to volunteer at an AIDS hospice center and discovered that Drew was HIV positive. He died three years later on September 30th, 1989, at the age of 53. Too young, much like many other gay men at the time. Mickey Ray lives in the state of New York now, and he didn't want to be interviewed for this story. But he did send me to his personal website, where he has published 4,700 words about what Drew meant to him, culminating with the sentence, I will love him and miss him for as long as I live. Mickey writes about the eggs that got tossed at them when they went to a gay rights march in Columbus and the day in 1977 when notorious anti-gay organizer Anita Bryant came to Kansas City. He posts a lot of photos, too. Their dogs, Nikki and Bambi, their Volkswagen Beetle, Drew and his mom at a gay pride march, Drew tending to his rose garden. They have a memorial for him at Loose Park, the rose garden. Kevin met Mickey in 2016 at the unveiling of a historical marker commemorating the 50th anniversary of the National Planning Conference. You can tell that Drew had found his partner, that Mickey had found his rock. You just tell that the guy who Drew was, like, inspirational leader, like, always on the go doing things. But, like, on top of that, he was just somebody that everyone found the ability to connect with. Remember Keith Spare, who met members of the Phoenix Society as a teen? He grew up to be the first openly gay therapist in Kansas City. But the way our state has honored the memory of Drew Schaefer and the work of the Phoenix Society continues to be a center point for controversy. In September 2021, the traveling exhibit that Stuart Hines curated with students from the University of Missouri-Kansas City about Kansas City's early gay rights history 
was supposed to hang in the Missouri State Capitol. Until a traveling LGBTQ exhibit created at UMKC has been removed from the Missouri State Capitol. The Capitol is is the house of all Missourians. That's why they agreed to have this exhibit there, because this told the story of underrepresented Missourians, and to just have it yanked was really quite shocking. There was a pretty frantic couple days of emailing local leaders and four-letter words. You know, it's a handful of homophobic legislators who didn't like seeing it. Openly gay Missouri State Senator Greg Razor. And I'm afraid that the administration caved to their pressure. We were in the New York Times, we were in the Washington Post, we were in the London Daily Mail. Governor Mike Parsons said last week that the exhibit would be moved to the Lowman Building down the street from the State House. Any kind of censorship is an affront to all people, but in particular, this this hit home very, very closely for a variety of reasons. Ironically, because of the decision to remove the exhibit, it's actually gotten more attention than it would have. But that's only a small consolation when you realize that the story that was being censored was a story about amplifying marginalized voices in the first place. Remember, the Phoenix Society's whole goal was civil rights for gay people, and it went about it by becoming a voice for a community that didn't have one. I feel like the ability that they had to to publish what they want when they wanted and be a true representation of who they were allowed other gay people to see themselves in something for once. A lot of what the Phoenix Society did was journalism, but it also had an unmistakable DIY publishing spirit. And you can still feel that living on today in Kansas City's thriving zine community, where people are passionate about self-publishing non-commercial magazines in small, limited batches. People like Jess Hogan. I understand you're familiar with our podcast host. (laughs) Um, How do you know Suzanne? Oh, Suzanne Hogan? Yeah, we uh, we go way back. We're siblings. This is not why I talked to Jess, though. Jess is also the owner of Kansas City's Neither Nor Zine Distro, which stocks zines and coffee shops and venues across the city, and one of the organizers of KC ZineCon, an annual gathering of DIY publishers. One of Jess's favorite parts about making zines is that there aren't any rules. Since there's no one really filtering it, they could kind of do whatever they want. They could say whatever they want. So that can be really exciting for people who maybe haven't ever been able to do something without some element of gatekeeping, especially like younger people, kids. They're like, I can write about anything. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) Like maybe don't show your parents, but, or do. A lot of the queer zines Jess consumes these days are about representation and creating community. And Jess says that can be a radical act in itself. It's more um, people talking about their specific experiences and just like existing, you know, and kind of creating that like healing space through like writing or art or poetry to just like be who you are and have like a platform for it. Like, here's one example. Jess made a zine about pronouns, what they are, how to use them and why they matter. It gives you advice on just asking people like there's like even a little back and forth like dialogue that's like hi I'm Jess my pronouns are they them it's cool in that sense to think of it as like this time capsule from a very like specific person's point of view or experience I like ending the story here 
because it's an example of how the work that Drew and his friends were doing in the 1960s is still taking place today, and why that's important. We tend to view American history as like this constant march toward progress, which is total crap. It's like, no, you got to fight for that stuff. And if you don't fight for that, you can fall backwards. Like, it's not just this linear history. And I think it's important that Drew did the work that he did to set up the group that came after. And Gay Lib did the group that came after them. And, and that we keep pushing forward to make sure that everybody is treated fairly. People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode was reported, produced, and mixed by Mackenzie Martin, with editing by Barb Shelley and me, Suzanne Hogan. Our intern is Hannah Bailey. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. For more about Drew Schaefer, check out the exhibit Making History, Kansas City and the Rise of Gay Rights, which is kicking off this week at the Kansas City Public Library and will feature artwork from the Kansas City Art Institute based on the exhibit's censorship in 2021. Special thanks to this episode to Stuart Hines, Kevin Charlow, and the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America for originally bringing this story to light. In addition to the following places for the archival sound, the Making Gay History podcast, the John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives at William Way LGBT Community Center, the Pacifica Radio Archive, the Internet Archive, and the Library of Congress. Coming up in two weeks on the podcast. She was a liberated young woman playing in jazz clubs when a lot of women were not allowed in these clubs. For more than three decades, Kansas City's dirty blues queen reigned over area jazz clubs singing crude songs. Her mother taught her not to sing. Until then, find us at kcur.org slash people's history and on Twitter at phkcpod for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute.